In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Rich, do you want to try out this mic? Okay. All right. Good morning. So one afternoon, I think we're a little loud. You want to back it down? Okay. Is that better? One afternoon at home, after having uh, preached a sermon, we were in the, our series on the Gospel of Mark, and I was talking with Christiana, and she made the, the comment to me about the passage, it's all men. It's all men in the story. I thought, yeah, that's true. And, you know, I could see, I, could th- I had some empathy. I could see how that would be challenging as a woman. So I just kind of tucked that away. And then this fall, I was, I was out driving. I was listening to a podcast um, thinking about what I was going to preach on during Advent, I was listening to a biblical scholar named Scott McKnight, and he was interviewing a female scholar about women in the Bible. And, and McKnight tells this story about how his book, The Jesus Creed, which we actually have in our library, when it was released, a former student wrote him and told him how much he had enjoyed the book, except for the chapter on Mary. He didn't like that one. And the former, said, the former student said, I read that chapter and every story is about women and I couldn't relate to them. And McKnight responded, that's how the women feel in your sermons every Sunday morning. How often do you tell stories about women? And at that moment I said to myself, like, that's what we're going to do during Advent. We're going to do a series on Mary. I've got to tell stories about women. I can't be the preacher who only tells stories about men. And so here, here we are. We're going to kick off a series on Mary. I grew up in a, a Protestant church. I went to a Catholic high school, so I was exposed to some Catholic teaching. And I'm sure some of you can probably relate to this. I'm pretty sure in our church, we knew more about what we didn't believe about Mary than what we actually did believe about Mary. Anybody else have that experience? Which is strange, you know, because Mary's she's in the Bible. And you know, Mary is thought of pretty highly in the Bible. There's even this verse that says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, which we have translated, all generations except for Protestant and Anabaptist will call me blessed. And unfortunately, I think this has caused us, maybe, maybe you haven't had this experience, but many of us have missed out on the incredible gift of Mary. Mary is the mother of God. But, the, but Mary also reminds us a lot of ourselves. She's a mother. As a mother, she would have experienced the joys that come with being the mother of a son. Mary loved her son. Mary was proud of her son. Mary also, at one point in Mark, if you remember, seems she has this moment where she thinks her son has lost his mind. Like, does that sound familiar to any of you parents? Mary knows what it's like to watch a boy grow up, to grow strong to be capable, to become a wise man. And Mary knows what it's like to lose a son. 
Mary knows what's, what's the most painful experience a mother or a parent can experience, to lose a child. Mary experienced that. But Mary isn't just a mother, because guess what? Mary is a disciple. Mary's a follower of Jesus. Mary doesn't just say yes to being the mother of Jesus, the Son of God. She will eventually say yes to following that same son as a disciple. And in between these two yeses, Mary is on a journey of faith. Mary is on a journey of faith. Whether you're a parent or not, you can relate to this journey if you too are a follower of Jesus. Because along this journey, Mary has mountaintop experiences. I mean, imagine when she's there and her son turns the wine, the water to wine in Cana. And she also has really, she has valley experiences. She'll, con, she'll experience confusion. She'll experience doubt. She'll experience sorrow all along this journey of faith. Her expectations about who Jesus is will have to be reconfigured. I, I have no idea. You don't know what it's like to birth the Savior of the world. I know what that's like. To experience the, the, the joys of the journey of faith, but also the struggles and the doubts. And so as we focus on Mary during this season of Advent and a little bit beyond, I want, what, I, what I want in particular is what does Mary have to teach you and me about being a disciple of Jesus? So let's start out. Who is this like? Who is this Mary? She has played such an outsized role in history, and yet we actually know, like, the historical Mary, we know very little about her. We could probably fit it within, like, a tweet, what we know. We, we don't get a lot, but here's what we get. We get some important stuff in verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but we got a lot to work with here. So let's start with Mary, where Mary's from. Mary's from Nazareth. Okay, Nazareth, you probably know, is small. It's secluded. It's an agricultural village. It's in the region of Galilee to the north. It had a population of about probably 200 to 500 people. And, and the main thing to know about Nazareth is this is like a podunk town. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. And when it's mentioned in John's gospel, it's it's... Uh, Philip's got this famous line where he's like, can anything good come from there? This announcement uh, to Mary by Gabriel, it, 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 it comes right after the announcement to Zechariah. And these announcements, as, as Ellen pointed out, there's a number of parallels, but they could hardly have happened in more different places. So the first announcement to Zechariah, it happens in the temple. It's in Jerusalem. This is literally like the center of the world for the Jewish people. This is the most important city in Israel. And now, like, we have this scene shift where all of a sudden we're in Nazareth, this tiny little podunk town in Israel. Like, if there's a movie, I was trying to imagine if you were doing a movie, imagine uh, flying over a flyover shot of Washington, D.C., and there's the, there's the Washington Monument, there's the Capitol, there's the Lincoln Memorial, and all of a sudden we're in Negley. There's Gorby's Restaurant, there's Dickie's Hardware, there's Bulldog Motorsports. Like, we are not in D.C. anymore. We are far away from the center of our nation's power. We are in small-town America. And I like small-town America. I've spent a decent amount of my adult life in small-town America. And, you know, one thing about small towns is, like, whether you want or not, most people are going to figure out what your business is, right? Like, what's going on in your life? Like, even in Columbiana. Like, one time, I, I maybe told this story. One time I called my bank in Columbiana, and I started talking. I hadn't said much at all. And they were like, oh, is this Matthew? Like, how do you know? How do you know who I am? 
She knew my voice, okay? Like not how I grew up at all. When you are young and you're a woman and you get pregnant in a small town, whether it's the first century in Palestine or the 21st century in America, people are going to know, okay? So Nazareth, small town. Secondly, we learn that Mary is young. We, we don't know how young, best guess, probably somewhere between 13 and 16. And we get this from the fact that she's pledged to be married. Now, let's, let's stop here because I always have to remind myself, like, what does this mean? Like, she's, is she engaged? Is she, what is this? So, so when we think about engagement, what do we think about? We think about this, you're engaged, and then there's this gap of time before you're then officially married. That's how engagement works in our culture, not in that culture. Mary is betrothed. She's not engaged like we think. She, she and Joseph are legally, would be legally considered married. So marriage then would be a two-stage process. First, the woman and the man would ex- exchange consent before witnesses. And at that point, now they're considered legally married. But they would not have sexual relations. And what would typically happen is that, is that the mother, Mary, um, the wife, would return to her, mother's, her family's home. And she would live there for up to a year. Then in the second stage of marriage, she would go move into the man's house, and that's when they would consummate the marriage. So meaning at, at this point, you know, where Mary's at in this process, it can only be dissolved by divorce. And that's going to be more important as we continue to move through this story. Okay, so Mary's from a small little podunk town, Nazareth. She's young. She's 13 to 16, and she's betrothed. Not engaged like we think of, but she's betrothed. She's legally married to Joseph. Okay, it's to this woman in this place that the angel Gabriel comes. And he says this, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This is a, this is a kind of a shocking announcement for a couple of reasons. I think it's easy to miss. One, we read that Mary is highly favored. She's the only person in the Bible that's addressed that way. And this is surprising because by almost all accounts, Mary would not seem to be highly favored. What, what scholars will tell you as they study history is that she would have belonged to the people called the Anawim. This is a Hebrew word which literally means the stooped, the bowed, the lowered. It, it would describe, particularly in the Psalms, uh, the people who were poor, afflicted, humble, meek. In particular, though, it, it describes those in the Old Testament who were poor but have remained faithful to God in times of difficulty. So they would have been known as the pious poor. Because of their lowly position, they would have had to learn to rely completely on God. And we know know Mary is poor because pretty soon in Luke, after Jesus is born, she and Joseph are going to go to the temple. They're going to make their offering. Normally, if they had enough money, they would sacrifice a lamb. But we learn they can't do that. They have to sacrifice birds. Okay, so we know she's poor. And in our world, I think, Rather than highly favored, I think we call that highly pitied. And I want you to see there's an inversion happening here. Okay, someone that's normally low on the status totem pole, the Anawim, is now being lifted up. It's being spoken of as someone who is blessed. And I think we're, I think we're somewhat familiar, hopefully, with this, this idea in the Bible. This, this is the kingdom that Jesus announces. We call it the upside-down kingdom. It's a reversal of values. It's a kingdom in which those who are considered low by the world are lifted up. Those who are high are lowered. But I think it's easy, you know, we're not in that culture. It's easy to forget how startling this reversal is. 
a guy named Tom Junod, he wrote an article. Sorry, I'm going to drink a lot of water today. I'm losing my, struggling a little bit. A guy named Tom Junod wrote an article for Esquire a number of years ago, and he wrote it about Fred Rogers. So Mr. Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And in the article, he tells the, the story about how Fred Rogers, there was this boy uh, who was afflicted by cerebral palsy, and he, the boy really struggled with his anger. He was terribly angry. And, but he loved Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And it worked out that Fred Rogers was going to visit this little boy. And, and so the, the day of the visit comes, and Fred Rogers is there. This boy gets so mad and so nervous. He's so nervous that he gets so mad and worked up that he starts kind of hitting himself, and his mom has to take him to a different room. But Fred Rogers, he didn't leave. Okay? He, he waited patiently. And finally, he was able to talk to the boy. And, and Fred said to the boy, I'd like you to do something for me. Would you do something for me? And the boy, he typed down his computer. Yes, yeah, he would do anything for Mr. Rogers. And Fred Rogers said, I'd like you to pray for me. Will you pray for me? And the boy was shocked. Nobody ever asked him that. He'd always been the one who was prayed for. And now he was being asked to pray for Mr. Rogers. And the boy did pray for him. And he continued to pray for him. And he, and he came to realize that if Mr. Rogers liked him, that must mean that God likes him. So it's a beautiful story, right? But when Fred Rogers is telling this story to Tom Junot in the story, so Tom compliments him on being smart. That you, you, knowing that it was smart to ask the boy for his prayers because that would make the boy feel better about himself. And Fred Rogers was puzzled. And he, and he finally said to Tom, Oh, heavens no, Tom. I didn't ask him for the prayers for, for him. I asked for me. I asked him because I think anyone who has gone through the challenges like that must be very close to God. I asked him because I wanted his intercession. That's the kind of inversion we're talking about. Where a man known all over the world realizes he needs the prayers of this little boy, the Anawim of our day, because he recognizes that boy is very close to God. Maybe you, maybe you signed up to go serve at God's choice. And maybe you got there, and all of a sudden you realized you were the one being served. You went to educate someone on God, and all of a sudden there's a moment at God's choice where you realize you're the one being educated. That's the inversion. That's the kingdom of God. And, and what does this sound like? This idea of a young, poor woman from a, a backwater village being suddenly favored? It sounds to me a lot like... Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. It sounds like the first shall be last and the last will be first. What is happening to Mary sounds a whole lot like what Jesus will go on to preach and proclaim when he announces the kingdom, these surprising inversions. And one of the things I want you to think about as we kind of go through this series is, you know, particularly the Magnificat, is where did Jesus learn all this? Where'd Jesus get all these ideas about the first being last and blessed be the poor in spirit? And I think sometimes we think maybe like Jesus got here and was put in Mary's womb and he, and he had like this preloaded download in his head. He had this like flash drive hooked up into him. And, and he just, when he got older, he just had to tap into that flash drive to get that information and then he could speak it. But remember, Jesus is human. We, we profess that he's fully human. 
Meaning Jesus is going to have to grow. He's going to have to learn. And that's exactly what we're going to read in Luke, is that he's going to grow in wisdom and stature, just like you and me. Who do you think is doing all this teaching? Who taught you? Who shaped you? Who molded you in many ways to the person you became? Your mother. My mother. Mary will eventually submit to the lordship of her son. But first... Jesus is his mother and his teacher. Jesus is learning from his mother. And when Jesus begins to teach, ask yourself, hey, I wonder where Jesus learned this. I'm not saying he learned all of it from Mary, but but think about the, the role that Mary has played in shaping Jesus' teaching. So that's the first kind of surprising thing about this, is that Mary is highly favored. But the second startling thing is that these words, the Lord is with you. Both Zechariah and Mary, uh, Gabriel comes to them in the announcement. They're both troubled and fearful, but for different reasons. Zechariah's in the temple, and he's, he's doing his thing with the incense, and all of a sudden Gabriel shows up, and he just basically loses it. He is totally gripped with fear, uh, and Gabriel hasn't said a word at this point. And then Gabriel says these words, do not be afraid. So, again, Gabriel shows up to Mary. She's troubled, and, he, and we hear again these words, do not be troubled. But, but, but what is Mary troubled by? Look what it says in verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled by his words, by his words. Why would Mary be troubled by these words? Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. What is troubling about that? Well, in the Old Testament, if you hear these words, the Lord is with you, like buckle your seatbelt. In the Bible, as Edward Sree points out, uh, the Lord is with you signals that someone is being called to a great mission that will be difficult and demanding. And the future of Israel is largely dependent on, who, on how well that person plays his part. Like, no pressure here, Mary. Think about it. Who, who hears these words? Moses, one day, he's out tending sheep. He's minding his own business. He sees this burning bush. He goes to check it out. Next thing he knows, he's told, you're going to bring the Israelites who have been in slavery for over 400 years out of Egypt. And, Mary, and Moses is like, like, who am I to do this? I will be with you. The word of the Lord comes to the, the, the prophet Jeremiah and tells him he's been set apart and appointed as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah says, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. <laughs> it gets worse because Jeremiah finds out that he's going to have to bring this message, this great message that, unhappy message that they're going to experience destruction and they're not going to be happy about it and they're going to try to overcome you, Jeremiah, but I am with you. Like, no wonder if Mary knows these stories, no wonder she's greatly troubled by this message. Mary is being called to stand in a tradition of Israelite heroes like Moses and Joshua and David and Jeremiah who heard these words, who suffered, sacrificed, and gave themselves radically for the Lord. She's being called to a daunting mission that will involve involve hardships and challenges. And the future of God's people will depend on how she responds. I don't know what you were doing when you were 13 or 14. I was playing a lot of Nintendo and golf. Future of God's people like not resting on my shoulders. Imagine what Mary's thinking. She's not troubled by the angel. She's troubled by the words she just heard from that angel. In this long line of men, 
Moses, Joshua, David, Jeremiah, who will play a critical role in moving the story to forward of Israel to its climax, steps in a 13-year-old girl. Of all the announcements in the Bible, of all, this is the announcement of all announcements, and it's trusted to this young Anawim 13-year-old girl. That's startling. That's backwards. That's the way our God works. Our God is a God of inversion. Our God is a God who looks at what's foolish in the world, a 13-year-old girl from Nazareth, and says, you're going to play a central role in my plan to redeem the world. That's how our God works. Gabriel continues. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The word of the Lord has come to Mary, and she has troubled. What does she do? She considers. She reasons. She thinks. She stops to discern what is happening, and she keeps listening. She doesn't close herself off. She's troubled, but she keeps listening. And Gabriel, Gabriel then says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. The angel doesn't say to her, hey, hey, you, I need you to do something for me. Now, Gabriel says, he calls her by name, Mary. I'm reminded of another Mary who at the end of Jesus' life will also find herself in a troubled and confused position. She will have gone uh, to look for the body of her Lord who has been killed and is now missing, and she's utterly distraught, and she will hear the word Mary. Names are powerful. Gabriel's in the process of dropping a bombshell on this and through this announcement, but he's also, there's this personal touch. Don't be afraid, Mary. So let's see, let's see if we can kind of bring this home a little bit. What does Mary, again, what does Mary have to teach us as disciples? First of all, God is a God who goes to unexpected places and unexpected people to further his purposes. Okay? God didn't go to the capital city. He didn't go to the center of power. He went to the margins. He went to a little town in the middle of nowhere. And he didn't look around and say, I'm going to find the most educated. I'm going to find the wealthiest. I'm going to find the most powerful person. He went to a young, poor girl. And he said, he said Gabriel, hey, go tell that girl she's going to play a central role in the redemption of the world. That's who's going to carry my son in the womb. That's going to, who's going to teach him and train him up. Isn't it good news? I think it's good news that God uses people like Mary for his purposes. Because if, if, if God can use a 13-year-old girl who's on the margins, who's overlooked by the world, it gives me hope that he can use us. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you find yourself like, I feel a little bit like Mary. I feel a little bit on the margins of society. It is good news that, that this is a God who sees you. you. You might be unseen by the world, but you are not unseen by God. You might be undervalued by the world, but you are not undervalued by God. God goes to unexpected places and unexpected people, and he uses them for his purposes. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't relate to Mary. I think this is a, a reminder to us, we better not cut ourselves off from the Marys of the world. If God shows up to an anawim of that day, you better believe he's showing up with the anawim of our day. You better believe that God is showing up at unexpected and unlikely places like the womb of Mary. Towards the end of his life, Jesus will tell a parable about the sheep and the goats. 
You probably know this parable. Where does Jesus show up in this parable? He shows up with the hungry. He shows up with the naked. He shows up in the jail. Again and again, Jesus is found with the Anawim. And you can say, well, we, we better make sure we feed those people and clothe those people and visit those prisoners. Okay, yes, but you're going to miss something here. You better be with those people because God is with those people. You better go sit with somebody who's been so vulnerable that they have had no other option than to rely on God because you've got something to learn about God from them. Don't just go to serve them. Go to find God there. Go to find out what they can teach you about God. Okay? Secondly, the Annunciation. The announcement of Gabriel, uh, from Gabriel that Mary receives is utterly unique. Mary is the only one that gets that announcement and that task. But all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to have your own announcements. You're going to have your, your own annunciations. Jesus is going to come to you and he's going to meet to me and he's going to ask you something. Not to bear the Son of God, but you will hear messages that trouble you. Messages that you would rather shut off, that you'd rather avoid. As Sri puts, we like Mary, we will need to choose between being open to new directions in which the Lord may want to take us, okay, new directions, or closing ourselves off from these possibilities out of fear or a willful clinging to our own plans. Okay, these announcements, these annunciations are going to come to you, and you're going to have a choice. Okay? Am I going to close off that path, or am I going to go off on a new path? I don't know what that's in your life. I don't know what, what Jesus might be knocking and prompting you on, on your heart right now. There's a good chance that it might be troubling you. And you're going to want to close it off. But look at Mary. She's troubled by what she's hearing, but she keeps listening. She keeps thinking. She's afraid and open to the path that God is laying out before her. Listen, we do not think in the journey as a disciple that fear is an indication you shouldn't do something. Do not think that. Learn from Mary's courage. Maybe, you've sent, maybe you're sensing right now that God's calling you in a new direction. Maybe you're thinking, quite frankly, like, I'm a little bit nervous about signing up for a service team. I'm a little bit nervous about stepping in a role that I've never been a part of. Maybe you're sensing, like, man, I, th I feel like God is calling me to give up something, and it makes me afraid. Maybe you sense that there's a conversation that the Lord has been prompting you to have with a, with a parent, with a child, with a friend, and that troubles you. Don't close it off. Keep listening to the Lord. Keep thinking. Keep pondering. Have courage. Don't be afraid. You've got to trust that what God is calling you to is for your good and to serve God's purposes. Don't be afraid because the Lord is with you. The God who comes to you and knocks is not an impersonal God. This is a God who comes and nudges and knocks and prompts and says your name. Don't be afraid. Because what Mary is being told is good news. One is coming, a Messiah, a king, whose kingdom will never end. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you did not go to the center of power but to, to the margins to find a young woman to bear your son. Thank you that you are a God who inverts the values of the world, who takes up what looks foolish and uses it to redeem the world. Thank you for the courage that Mary showed 
And that when she was troubled, she kept listening, kept thinking, God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying to us. Give us courage like Mary's courage to follow the path that you're leading on us down. Amen.